0: Let's take our Bibles and go to First Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians chapter four. Let's read the first eight verses together. Our text this morning will be verses 3 to verse 8. First Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray together. Father, we're privileged to gather this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ We're in dire need of instruction from your word. We live in an increasingly perverse society. And as we often expect, that there is a trickle-down effect into the church, where the church then becomes less and less pure as we start to look and be affected by and resemble the world. So Lord, let us heed our calling this morning to be sanctified Particularly, particularly in this area of abstaining from sexual immorality. May you give us the wisdom to see areas in our life that we need to be on guard. And may you give us the humility and the grace to put it into practice. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're picking up in chapter 4 where we uh, have uh, left off in our study. And this is the, the meat of... of of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, where chapter 4 begins. Uh, Because Paul is now uh, beginning to give instructions to these believers as uh, as to how they are to walk. And particularly here in the early verses of chapter 4, uh, he gives three specific instructions, or three specific appeals, uh, that they live in a certain way. The first is found here in verse 3, uh, that they abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, The second is found in verses 9 and 10, that they continue to increase and abound in their love for one another. And the third is found in verses 11 through 12, uh, the need to work quietly with a good testimony before outsiders. Now as Paul writes this, and he pens these instructions, he has just received an update from Timothy as to how these believers are doing there in Thessalonica. And so it's safe to assume, I think, that what the Apostle Paul writes here is inspired by uh, the report that Timothy has just given. In other words, the the things he writes here are a particular area of need for the Thessalonian believers. And the things he writes here, I think, would prove uh, very helpful for the Thessalonians in their particular culture. But I think what we'll see as well is that these things will prove helpful for us as we live in our current day as well. Now, before we unpack uh, these verses and the exhortation that Paul gives here, I want to review two thoughts that we uh, studied last week to sort of uh, help set the table for what we're considering this morning. First, we noted that this call to abstain from sexual immorality is part of God's will for each one of our lives, right? This is how verse 3 begins. This is... The will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And what we noted last week is that this idea of God's will, as it's used here in this particular passage, is not a a mystical plan that believers are intended to decipher in order to to make decisions about their their life. They're not supposed to discern the circumstances or or they're not waiting for a sign. But, But God's will here is something that's been clearly revealed in the pages of Scripture as to how he desires that we live. And so our task is to to know the Scriptures, to know God's revealed will for us, and to live in obedience to it. And so as we think about God's will, believers would be better served if they thought about God's will as being what's revealed in Scripture rather than uh, God's secret or will of direction where he is has a plan for what college we attend, or the individual we marry, or what house we purchase. No, God's will is found in his word, and not outside of it, and therefore this should be our focus, right? This is what God has revealed to us. Now, specifically in this passage, God's will is our sanctification, and the particular area of emphasis of our sanctification that Paul's mentioning here is in terms of our abstinence from sexual immorality. Now, the second thing we wanted to note as we, by, re, by way of review is that when the Bible speaks to this matter of sexual purity, it is unquestionably true. Now, what we discussed last week is that God created the sexual union between a man and a woman to be enjoyed in the context of marriage, and that's good and wise. And when, when, we, when we practice the, the sexual relationship in the context of marriage— God is most glorified, and we are most satisfied. And what we saw is that when mankind steps outside of what God has created, in favor of sexual autonomy, that what comes from that is societal chaos and ruin. Right? Last week we just mentioned the, the, number, of, uh, the, number, the number of things that are, that are fall, uh, an element of fallout just from sexual sin. Things like strife, jealousy, hurt, guilt illegitimate children, single-parent homes, divorce, abortion, poverty, murder, and the list could go on and on, all as a result of not keeping sex where God intended it to be inside the marriage relationship. And so when we approach this topic, we need to be convinced that what the Scriptures say is true. And obviously we, we watch the fallout happen before us, but somehow there's often this disconnect. But when we're tempted towards sexual sin, we think, well, those consequences, they won't really happen to me or they won't really apply to me, right? They happen to everybody else's situation. But we somehow convince ourselves that, that the, the consequences, they, they won't happen to us. That's really just a lie from the devil. So we need to enter this particular study convinced that what God says is right and true. Now, as we walk into this passage in verses 3 through 8, let me do a quick overview of Paul's argument here, and the way he, he works through this passage, and then we'll, we'll unpack these, uh, these verses phrase, one phrase at a time. All right. so he begins with the reminder to abstain from sexual immorality, and you see that in verse 3. Then following this reminder, he elaborates on this reminder in, in two ways. The first is regarding yourself. You need to control your own body. And that's verses 4 and 5. The second is regarding other people. You must not transgress or wrong them. And then he concludes the passage with the reason for all of this, because God has called us not for impurity, but for purity, as we see in verses 7 and 8. So we're going to look at the reminder, and then he gives two, uh, two elaborations on the reminder, and then finally the reason uh, for, for all of his instructions. So let's begin in verse 3 with the reminder that Paul gives here. To abstain from sexual immorality. So, this was not new for these believers. As Paul writes, you know, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This was not the first time that they were hearing these particular instructions. In fact, if you look down at verse 6, he says this We told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So, this is not the first time that he's, that he's saying this. Yet, in spite of the fact that this is not the first time that they've heard this, these believers still needed this reminder. And I think they needed this reminder for two reasons. Number one, because of the life from which they were saved. And number two, because of the ongoing temptation to sexual immorality. Now let's just, let's talk about those two reasons here, okay? They needed this reminder, first of all, because of the life from which they were saved. Uh, there's a commentary, the Pillar New Testament commentary on First Thessalonians uh, by Gene Green that's especially helpful, but he devotes a good amount of attention to the, the sexual immorality of the day here in Thessalonica. He notes that the religious system of the day promoted sexual license, which we shouldn't be surprised because in all of these false religions, the appeal is the sexual freedom. Like, if you're going to create a false religion, you're going to do so so that it encourages your, your, your sexual expressions, not discourages them. And that, throughout the history of Scripture, what we see is that all these false religions were always accompanied by some sort of, of, of sexual expression. And this was the case in the temple in Thessalonica. You had gods that essentially approved of and provided for the natural desire for sex. And temple prostitutes were made available for the men who wanted to come and fulfill their sexual desires as, quote-unquote, an act of, of worship. And this was seen as a normal part of society. Now, in addition to the immorality that existed in the temple worship, first century Thessalonica encouraged immorality in a number of other ways. So single men were encouraged to engage in fornication, provided that that no damage was done to either themselves or others. Uh, if, if a man owned female slaves, he could use them to fulfill his sexual desires as well. Married men could engage in extramarital relationships. Wives were seen as, as being for childbearing and, and the establishment of the family, but other women were seen for, for pleasure. And in general, in this culture, sexual relationships were more open for men than they were for, for women. Now, what was generally condemned in this society was uh, adultery. But it's hard to even know how, how significantly or how much it was actually condemned. Now, it's interesting that, that most lewd societies, they, they, they want to draw the line somewhere. And so in this case, maybe they drew the line at uh, you couldn't have sexual relations with another person's spouse. Now, all of this gives us insight as to what the culture was like. And if you remember back to Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem council, uh, Paul and Barnabas had had just planted numerous churches in the region of Galatia. And now there was this debate in Jerusalem as to whether these new Gentile churches needed to come under the Mosaic law and keep keep the Mosaic law. And the conclusion of the matter is that they did not... But it's interesting that the council of Jerusalem asked Paul and Barnabas to relay this message to these new Gentile churches. That they abstain from, and he mentions four things in Acts 15. Things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what had been strangled, and from blood. Now three of those things, uh, the reason that they asked for these things, uh, for for example, uh, things polluted by idols, things strangled, and from blood... It seems best to see that they were asking them to abstain from those things because there were, there were Jews that lived in this community, in all of these, these, these foreign, foreign cities. And, and that would be, create a stumbling block to the gospel if these newfound believers were, were exercising their freedoms in a, in a careless way. They didn't want to be a stumbling block for the gospel. But the command to abstain from sexual immorality for these new Gentile churches was different. And it was likely due to the pervasive immorality of this culture that they reminded these believers specifically that they ought to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, once you recognize the life from which these individuals were saved, you begin to understand the need for this reminder in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Right? The Thessalonians, they didn't grow up in a Christian school. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't homeschooled and, and taught morality from the beginning of their, their education. No, they were saved right out of the temple and all its perversity. Right? You remember what chapter 1 verse 9 says? That they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So this was all part of their previous life. But now, they're trawling, trying to follow Christ with with, with every ounce of their being, and they're finding it difficult to live under this new sexual ethic and keeping the sexual relationship in the context of, of marriage. And so Paul needs to remind them, this is God's desire for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So that's the first reason they needed this reminder. But the second reason they needed this reminder was because of the ongoing temptation to sexual sin. Though they had turned to Christ, they still wrestled with the flesh. There was the tug of war that existed in their hearts, right? To to either please the Lord and walk by the Spirit, or to live according to the flesh and to please themselves. And this was an ongoing war that existed in their hearts. Now for you and for me, the circumstances are, are, are not that much different from the Thessalonians. We live in a culture that encourages sexual freedom and provides opportunity around every corner to gratify your sexual desires. And we find it difficult to escape the the ongoing nature of these temptations. And even if we were able to escape, we wouldn't be able to escape the thoughts and the desires of our own heart. And so we need this reminder just as much as the Thessalonians did to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the expression here that he uses, sexual immorality, it comes from the Greek word pornea, which means any kind of sexual expression outside of a heterosexual marriage. So it included things like fornication, adultery, homosexuality, incest, and prostitution, And in some contexts, this word pornea is used to distinguish between adultery. But here in verse 3, it refers to all forms of sexual perversion. Now sometimes, just to be be clear, sometimes the accusation against Christians is that they are against against the sexual relationship. And sometimes the way believers talk about it or, or don't talk about it at all would give the indication that they are against it. And so we have to be clear that we believe that God created... the the sexual relationship to be regularly enjoyed between a husband and wife in the context of a marriage relationship. And as we said earlier, that God is most glorified and we are most satisfied when we keep the sexual relationship inside the confines where God created it. So in that, we we, we also affirm that other expressions outside of what God has created and designed are a perversion of this good gift, and we should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the word here, abstain, involves more than partial moderation. Okay? It involves full and intentional avoidance of sexual immorality. Jesus is helpful on the Sermon on the Mount. He's uh, he's, he's preaching, and he says... To the, to the crowds where he says in verse 27 of Matthew 5, you heard, it, you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And listen to what Jesus goes on to say next in terms of, of fighting temptation and sexual sin. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out or throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Jesus says, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now this is what we are talking about. This is what we might call taking radical measures in order to avoid sexual sin. It's not that we actually pluck out our eye or that we actually cut off our, our limb. But what the, the, the idea that Jesus is, is articulating here is that we carefully evaluate our life, we identify the areas of temptation, and we do what's necessary to cut off those temptations and not feed our lusts. So this past week I was with the the college and career and we were talking through this particular passage and I, I, I shared this with them, you know, so if your if your cell phone, right, is, is causing is a point of temptation for you, I said this. If your smartphone is causing you to sin, throw it away, for it's better that you enter heaven with a flip phone than enter hell with a smartphone. Okay? And it's that idea of of taking the the, the necessary measures in order to guard our heart against temptation. Okay, so this is, the, this is the reminder that Paul gives. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, in the, the remaining verses here, he's going to go on to elaborate on this, on this reminder. Okay, So first he elaborates in verses 4 and 5 uh, regarding ourselves. Okay? Here's, so here's what you're do, to, to do for, for yourself or with yourself. Verses 4 and 5 he says... He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, so so this is what you're to do for yourself in terms of avoiding sexual immorality. You are to control your own body in holiness and in honor. Let's step back a little bit for last week and and, and note what we considered here um, so we can appropriately understand this this passage in its its, uh, proper uh, context, okay? So last week, we talked about the, the, the nature of sanctification and how it is that we grow up in holiness before the Lord, and we mentioned three things. First, we said that sanctification is first internal and supernatural, that as as we're looking to grow in our holiness, we're not just conforming our behavior to certain biblical expectations, but rather we're in the process of being transformed uh, in the the inner man. Okay, so Paul says, so, so don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And in the sanctification process, that's where we start. We want to be be transformed from the inside out so that our, our, our desires and our, 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 our interests and our loves are changing. Okay, so sanctification is first internal and supernatural. Secondly, we said that it is a, is a work of the Holy Spirit, that God has given us the Holy Spirit who is at work in us and is in the process of, of changing us to, to look more like Christ. So he is, he is at, at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But the third aspect of sanctification that we highlighted is that God uses various means in order to accomplish sanctification in our lives. And so as we give ourselves to the reading of the word and prayer and the fellowship of believers, God uses those things to change us and to look more like Christ. But one of the things we said is that sanctification involves our responsible participation. In other words, it involves you and me giving effort in our growth and holiness. And one of the ways we, we give effort in our holiness is to, to, to attempt to control our sinful desires. Now, I like the way that Alistair Begg defines self-control when he says this. He says, self-control is the spirit-enabled ability to avoid excesses and stay within the God-given boundaries. Okay, now there's a couple things I like about this definition, okay? The first one is that he recognizes that, that ultimately s- self-control is spirit-enabled, okay? It's a spirit-enabled ability. This is, the, this is the entire point of Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, but what is it? It is self-control, that as the Spirit is at work in us, it enables us to control our, our desires. But I also like about this definition that he defines self-control as both avoiding the excesses and staying within the God-given boundaries, right? For, for some acts or some activities, the sin is not the activity itself, but enjoying it more than God has allowed, right? God allows us to enjoy certain things, but when we don't enjoy them in moderation, then we have, we have, we have no longer been self-controlled and we have sinned. But another aspect of, of self-control is staying within the God-given boundaries that he has established. And this is the case when it comes to this area of, of, of abstaining from sexual immorality. Okay? The self-control we need here is to live within the God-given boundaries. You know, when we first, several years ago, first got our dog uh, that we no longer have... Uh, who I refer, affectionately referred to as Satan. Um, and incidentally, this dog was the, the cause of me losing all kinds of self-control. Um, but now Todd and Amy, they can lose self-control over this, this dog. But anyway, she was a very small puppy, and she could fit underneath the certain spots uh, in, our, in our fence. And so she would like to escape and to go out and to, to, to see what was going on and explore the, the neighborhood. Now, keep in mind, she had everything she needed inside the fence. She had room to run, uh, toys to play with, uh, the safety and protection of, of a nice yard. But she would often escape, escape the boundaries. Now, the, the, the boundary was there for, for her well-being, right? She had, she had everything she needed, but instead, she often would, would head out. And, and there's dangers outside of the fence. There's, there's the busy street. There are other bigger dogs. There's the threat of being lost. And, and, and the fence was for her good, but she didn't necessarily see it that way. Now, in this sense, it, it's what happens when we lack self-control. Okay? We step outside the, the parameters that God has established, and we, we, we look for, for freedom for our expression of our own lust outside those boundaries. Now, if we're going to learn self-control, then we need to be convinced— that what God has established in the boundaries is not to limit our pleasure, but to maximize our pleasure. And, and, and what he ha- he's not limiting our good, but rather he has our best interest in mind. Okay, He's built into the fabric of life certain way that things that should go. And when we step outside the boundaries, well, then we often face the consequences of, of doing so. But what we often believe is that what's outside the boundaries is better than what's inside the boundaries. And that's why we must continue to come back to believe that God is good, and and he's right, and he's true, and what he has created is actually for our good, so then we're not tempted to step outside the boundaries that God has established. So controlling our bodies means that we live within the boundaries that God has established. Now, notice in verse 5... We actually see the opposite of, 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 of controlling your body. We see the opposite of self-control in verse 5, right? Okay, so he, he goes on to say that this is what the, the Gentiles do in verse 5. He says, don't be like them, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, rather than living within the boundaries, those who don't know God encourage self-indulgence in the passions of the flesh. Now, there's a passage, and you don't have to turn to it, but it's over in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. And the idea here of living in the passions of your flesh or the passions of your lust is, is a really clear picture. Right? So, so Paul says in Philippians 3, 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And he says this, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Now, here's what these enemies of the cross are like. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, the interesting phrase in that passage is this. Their God is their belly. Now, that conjures up all kinds of interesting images Okay? Of, of people sitting around admiring their belly, uh, in a sense. That's kind of what I, what I picture. But what really is happening in this phrase is this. He's saying these individuals have fleshly appetites, and their God or their chief pursuit is the gratification of these appetites. He's saying that's what people who don't know God are, are like right? They, they live for the lust of their flesh or to gratify their appetites because they do not know God. It reminds me of what Solomon said when in Ecclesiastes 2. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Okay, it's this idea of if you, if you, if you want sexual expression, then, then there's no restraints and you just express yourself. And that is the prevailing mindset of the culture. What's seen in our world today? Right, Christians speak of the fact that to step outside of the God given restraints is evil, and the world says no, to have restraints altogether is is evil. But for those of us who know God, we are serious and should be serious about crucifying the flesh along with its sinful desires. So, we're to abstain from sexual immorality. And first what that means is that we must control our bodies. But now the second aspect of this is, is seen here in, in what Paul says, is that we are not to transgress or wrong another person. Right? So the first pertains to ourselves, but now in verse 6 we see these instructions regarding other people. Now we live in a day where consent is essentially the only rule when it comes to sexual relationships. Like, as long as two individuals consent, then there's nothing wrong with it. But if one individual doesn't consent, well, then I think the world would be willing to use the word immoral, okay? But notice what this passage teaches us. Verse 6 teaches us something different. And Paul uses two words here, right? He says says the word transgress and and wrong. Now, in in the ESV, these words are not picked up the imagery isn't, isn't fully picked up here. But the word transgress is, is literally the word to trespass. And, and the, in fact, if you see in, in the King James, it says that no one goes beyond or defrauds his brother. So the idea here of transgressing or trespassing is actually to step across a boundary line that does not belong to you. Right? So, so in, our, in our midst here, we have lots of, of hunters... And you know very well the importance of, of boundaries and not crossing boundaries. I was talking to my father-in-law from, in, from, from probably 30 years ago. He's, he's still bitter about this one incident where he was hunting on uh, state grounds, which he was allowed to do. But somewhere in the midst of it, there was a small section of private property. And so they had agreed to hunt for a while and then come back to the car and meet for lunch and when they did, there was a DNR officer waiting for them. And so they informed him that they were hunting in certain areas on private property, made them drive an hour over to this one town, pay the fine, only drive an hour back and continue with the rest of their, of their day. And he's still bitter about it. And every time we visit this one state park, he tells a story about how he got in trouble for, for trespassing. Okay? Well, what's the idea of trespassing? It's, it's stepping on to a piece of property that, that does not belong to you that you do not have permission to be on, right? Now, this is the imagery that Paul's using in this passage. When you commit sexual immorality, you are trespassing or stepping into a, a territory that, that does not belong to you and does not, uh, you don't have permission to be there. Now, the second word he uses is not just trespass, but it's the word uh, wrong, but the word literally here is to defraud or to take advantage of. So to commit sexual immorality is to to use someone and take advantage of them for your own interest. Okay? Now this is a powerful statement here. Because what he's saying is sexual immorality is, is trespassing and defrauding. And when these two words are put together, there's a powerful word picture. Right? It's, it's, it's it, it's that this individual does not belong to you. And, and you cannot gratify your sexual desires with this person because, because it's not your property. Now, interestingly enough, when the Bible starts to speak about marriage, it starts to speak of words like belonging and, and ownership. right? So you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and it says the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, nor does the wife have authority over her own body, but they belong to each other. Okay, But, but outside the marriage relationship, there is no belonging. Now Some would say, well, what about consent? Doesn't consent matter? Well, if a person consents to allow you to, to commit sexual immorality, we must recognize that they don't have the authority to give permission for sexual immorality. For God has given all of us our bodies and we are responsible to use them in a way that pleases him and is consistent with what he desires. And so the Lord is the one who defines and sets the parameters on these things. Furthermore, if we genuinely love one another, then we will put those in that individual in a position to love Christ more. We will push them to Christ. Right? So you're familiar with, with, the, with this, this expression of, of, of self-love, right? So I love me, and you love me, and so I love you because you help me love myself better, okay? That's what much of, that's what much of, of love is these days, okay? It's, it's, it's you help me gratify myself more, so I, I love you for that, okay? But then once, once you enter into marriage with that kind of relationship... And as the country song says, the old wears off and the new shines through. It ain't really love and it ain't really lust. Okay? You ain't anyone anybody's going to trust. Okay? Once you get into that, that context, you realize that this was just built on a selfish version of love. Okay? So what genuine love is, is pushing one another toward Christ. All right, so we've, we've seen the reminder abstain from sexual immorality. Now, regarding yourself, that means self-control. And regarding others, it means you don't trespass or wrong against them. But now, lastly, we get into the reason why all of this uh, should happen, okay? The reason why we should avoid sexual immorality. And this is picked up in verses 6 through 8. Okay, look at the end of verse 6. He says this. Here's why. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, what we learn here is that in order to abstain from sexual immorality, what we need is a big view of God. And the bigger the view of God, the better the pursuit of holiness. Okay, that's what Paul does at the end of this passage, is he he gives us this this big view of God. Okay, so he says three things. He says, first of all, notice that he is an avenger on those who commit sexual immorality. Now, this phrase in verse 6, that he's an avenger on those who commit sexual immorality, ties right back to what's said before it. So in other words, if you transgress or trespass, and you defraud another person that that doesn't belong to you, rest assured, Paul's saying, that God will bring justice and consequences to those who take advantage of another person sexually. Now, it's not clear here whether Paul means immediate consequences or in the age to come consequences, but nonetheless, we can rest assured that God's judgment will visit those who are sexually immoral. And as we as we're tempted towards sexual immorality, we would do well to have a healthy fear of God. Like, he is an avenger on the sexually immoral. The last thing I want to do is cross God and step into a territory uh, to face his judgment. Okay? The second thing he says is in the next verse, he says that God has called us to holiness. Now, this word called sometimes can be confusing in, in the New Testament, but really it's synonymous with the idea of salvation. That God has, has called us, as Peter says, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay? When, when, when Paul here refers to being called for the purpose of, of holiness and purity, it's, it's that we were saved for the purpose of holiness and, and purity. So we weren't saved to continue in darkness and to continue in our previous lifestyle, but we were saved for the purpose of walking in holiness. And sometimes in the face of temptation, we need to remind ourselves that this is not what God has saved me for, but rather God has saved me for purity. And the last thing Paul says here in terms of a bigger view of God, he says this in verse 8, to disregard this is not to disregard man, but it is to disregard God. Now that particular statement is meant to be especially weighty. That when you disregard this, it's it's not just some instructions that man has crafted. But God Almighty has laid down the parameters. And to disregard what he says is to find yourself at odds with him. So we see then the bigger the view of God, the greater our pursuit of holiness. Now in our scripture reading, we read a perfect example of the life of Joseph. Right? He's a he's a, a captive in Egypt, in Potiphar's house. He's well respected and he's put in charge of everything. And Potiphar's wife finds Joseph attractive and begins to pursue him. And what what I always probably overlooked in the story numerous times is that she continued to pursue him again and again and again and be a source of temptation. And now listen, Joseph's a slave in a foreign land. There are no other Israelites around. He's not with the people of God and could easily have, have convinced himself that he could get away with this and it'd never be known. But Joseph lived his life with a big view of God and the desire to please God. Okay, so, so she, 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 she and tries to entice him, but here's Joseph's response. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge he is not greater in the house than or he is not greater in this house than I am nor is he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife and he says this how can i do this great wickedness and sin against god now, the interesting thing about this passage is he says, like, a couple times, like, well, though my master's put me in charge of everything. He's trusted me with everything, except you. How could I do this great wickedness, and you would expect him to say, and sin against my master? But that's not what he says, because his, 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 his view of sin is, is before God. And he, so he says, how could, I, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Because Joseph realized... What 1 Thessalonians is saying, that God is an avenger on those who commit sexual sin, that God has called us for, for purity, and holiness, and that to disregard this would be to disregard what God has said. Really, it comes back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, We instructed you how you ought to live to please the Lord so do so more. So this is what it looks like when our controlling desire is to please the Lord. We abstain from sexual immorality. Now, as we close, I'll give you a little, a little bit of a test this morning, and you can, you can answer your test and figure out where you, where you stand in relation to these things, okay? We'll use a, a nautical metaphor this morning. So put yourself in one of these categories and when it comes to wrestling with and, and, and abstaining from sexual immorality where, where would you put yourself in this category okay so think of four different boats or four different water scenarios okay so, so we've got sailing we've got rowing we've got drifting and we've got sinking okay so sailing would be like you're doing really well and You've been doing really well for a while, and thank God you're you're doing really well. Rowing would be like it's a struggle, but I'm putting in the effort. I'm, I'm doing what I need to 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 stay holy before the Lord. Drifting would be like I'm not really putting in effort, but I'm not doing as bad as I could, I guess. And so I'm just kind of floating along. Temptations there, there's there's indulgence, but I'm not. I'm not sinking, which would be the last category of sinking. That if I don't get help soon, this is going to end in disaster. Okay, so, so where are you then? Sailing, rowing, drifting, or sinking? Now, I've had one person try to invent a new category and say, well, I've got one paddle on the water, but I'm kind of drifting. You know, say, no, no, no new categories, all right? Just, just those four, all right? Sailing, rowing, drifting, or sinking. Now, here's the question. If you're drifting or sinking, what is it that you need to do in your life to move into the category of rowing or the pursuit of sailing? Okay, so what needs to change in in your life to fight against these temptations towards sexual sin? Maybe it's you need to to bring some stuff to light, to confess stuff that's, that's in your life. Maybe you need the help or accountability of another brother or sister in Christ. I can't speak to your specific situation, but this is how we need to think, okay? How do I move from this category of drifting or sinking so that I'm putting in the effort of rowing so that I can be in the pursuit of sailing? Okay, so this is the will of God for our lives, our sanctification that we abstain from sexual immorality because he has called us and saving us to walk in holiness. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word, which is so clear. And Lord, we're aware of the temptations we face on a regular basis, and so it's, it's encouraging to have the word meet us where we are this morning so that me, we might grow up into greater holiness and pursuit of you. Lord, I don't know where my brothers and sisters are today in their relationship with you, particularly in this area of abstaining from sexual immorality. But we do know that that you have given us the church, you've given us your word to encourage one another, to help one another, to 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 make it make it to the end in, in faithfulness and in honor of you. So, Lord, let there not be shame in terms of 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 our sins, where, Lord, appropriate shame is good, but let us not be embarrassed to, to confess our sins to one another and to seek help. For it's only pride that, that keeps us from, from seeking the help we need. So, Lord, would you bring things to light, reveal sin, so that we can walk with one another in greater holiness and obedience, so that we can be a testimony of, of Christ's likeness to our community, and ultimately honor you in all things.